are in our new series entitled Upside Down Kingdom. And if you would turn with me, if you haven't already, to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Uh, I want you to follow along with me as we're going to be going through this, what is known as the Sermon on the Mount for the next about 28 to 32 weeks, give or take. It's a long time. Uh, but if you uh, don't have a Bible and yet you want to follow along, just stick your hand up. We have Bibles in the back that we can pass out to you. We'd love you to follow along for yourself so you can see and understand what's going on. Uh, but just stick that up, and uh, we want you to be in the Word with us. But we are in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, and uh, it's on uh, page 809 in your pew Bible. Uh, but as I mentioned before, this year, sermon series we have entitled Upside Down Kingdom. Upside Down Kingdom. Now, what that means is, uh, is this. We, we chose the name Upside Down because what it is and what we're going to see here is something completely antithetical and countercultural from what this world values. It, it, is, it goes against the grain of what we have heard most of our lives on how to live and how to conduct ourselves because God has shown us that what He values is different than what the world values so often. So it's upside down. It's turning it around. And it's also called Kingdom. We've chosen the title Kingdom because the one who is speaking it is King Jesus. Now, we, we, we call him King Jesus because he is the king. Um, in, in the scriptures, we see and we understand that he is what we call the, the king, um, what we call the king-elect. Just like in our, in our country, when um, elections come in November every four years for the president of the United States, and when the president wins the election and he has not yet taken office, he is known as the what? President-elect, meaning that he is, he is the president He has won the election, but yet he has not assumed all of the powers of his office until January. And see, the Savior, after he had died and gave his life on Calvary's tree, he died, was buried, and rose again. He ascended into heaven. And there he reigns. And he is reigning as king from heaven, but yet the reality of that reign will not be realized until he comes again. So he is, in essence, the Savior-elect. Now, this message that he spoke in Matthew 5 through 7, it takes about uh, you know, 10, 15 minutes to read, and it is known as the greatest sermon of all time. And it has transformed and influenced some of the greatest minds in all of history. Names like Leo Tolstoy or Mahatma Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. All of these individuals were somehow influenced by the words in this message. And it, it's, it's hard to underestimate how people have been touched by it. And we see Jesus speaking to us about how we are to live and conduct ourselves. There have been those within time have seen it as a means of social justice, and this is in how we are to arrange society. There are others that see this as, as something that will take place when in the millennial kingdom of Christ... And there are still others who just believe that this is the ideal that no one can live up to. But we shall see that this is not an, ide- this is not an ideal that we can't live up to. This is something that we can do. Then it's not something for completely in the future, but it's for the here and now. And it's not something for those who are outside of Christ, just Christ to arrange society. But this is deeply personable and can be applied in our everyday lives. Indeed, this is the life that God desires that we live if we want to be blessed by Him. Now, I mentioned that this series is going to take place over a long span of time, and we have divided these into what we call sermon suites, where they're about eight weeks at a time, and we'll be looking at kingdom attitudes, kingdom actions, 
kingdom affections and kingdom ambitions or aspirations. And so today we're going to be breaking down and starting off into these kingdom attitudes, which are known as the Beatitudes, which are truly words to live by. You know, this past week, I was talking with Andy Besick. Some of you might know him, some of you might not. He is, has been working at our church, um, working down at our lower level. He is from our Sugar Grove campus. He came to know Christ about two years ago. And while he's been working and, and giving of his time freely and, and doing such great work, I've gotten to know him and hear his story. And he told me about how he was raised. And I, and I just kind of shook my head as he was telling me some of the stories. He said that when he was a boy, that his father took he and his three brothers and sat them down, and he was giving them instruction on how they were to live their life. And what he said just caused my jaw to drop. This is the advice that his father gave him and that he remembers to this day. He, he says this. His dad goes, you have to have larceny in your heart to survive in this world. Now, for myself, I went, what does that mean? How do you have larceny in your heart? And Andy said this. He goes, the way I interpreted, interpreted that was, you have to have a tough shell. Don't let them know that you've been hurt by them and that there is a sucker born every minute. And make sure that you get them before they get you. Andy said, it was a life lesson for us. That's how bad he was and that's how he expected us to live. No one is going to help you, help you so you have to get everything you can. He goes, it's a terrible lesson. Now, as I've shared those words with you, you have undoubtedly probably remembered and recalled some words that your parent or a teacher or a friend taught you, and you have organized your life by those words. Now, yours may not have been as bad as his, or it could have been worse. Who knows? But we all have things and words that we have heard in, your, in our lives that we have used to direct our lives. Certain philosophies, certain expressions, the way we go about things, how we deal with problems, how we deal with conflict, how we go about our work, how we run our money. All of these things influence how we think. Now, these words that we usually receive from other people, they're sometimes just plain wrong, bad advice, or they are, they are okay, but none of them are as perfect or as good as Jesus's. Jesus' words are the only true and real trustworthy words to direct and influence our life. They're greater than any philosophy. They are greater than any ideal. They are the words of Almighty God. Because God has made us, and he knows how we, it, we are to work, how we are to live. So he has given us within his word how we are to conduct ourselves. So we, it behooves us to look into his word and study and learn how we are to apply these words to our lives. And I guarantee as we go into this, this is not going to be pleasant. Because what we're doing is we're laying ourselves on God's spiritual operating table. And we are saying, Lord, take your word and cut away the cancer of unbelief in our lives. And when we do that, when we are very honest before him about what we're dealing with, and if we are really wanting to hear from God, he's going to put us and poke us in some uncomfortable places. You ever had that? When you have someone poke you and it's like, ow. Or the doctor goes, what does it hurt? And you go there and he pokes it and you're like, I don't like that. Or when you're getting a massage, you ever had a massage, someone give you a back rub, and they go, you're tense. And my wife, I love to do this to my wife. She's like, honey, would you give me a back rub? I'm like, sure. And she goes, oh, right there, right there. And then that's when I do what? I dig in. And I enjoy it. And she's like, ah! <laughs> but if I don't dig in, 
doesn't get loosened up, does it? You've got to really push on that and bring it out. And see, that's what God does in his word. By his spirit, through the power of his word, he digs into us to remove that. And it's going to be, ow, 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 ow. But he's going to bring relief. He's going to bring joy. He's going to bring us peace. So let's jump right into this text. But before that, let's ask God's blessing on our message time. Father, we come before you. We lay ourselves at your, at this table. Lord, perform surgery. Make us uncomfortable. Show us the cancer in our lives. And by the power of your word, which is a blade, cut away the unbelief. Remove that which is keeping us from fullness of joy with you. Convict us of sin. Show us what it means to live a righteous life. Lord, help us to see the power that we have in and through you to live the life that you intend and that you delight in and that we will have joy if we do. Give us peace and use us for the honor and glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's, let's jump right into our text. Stay with me, hopefully. Let's look at, uh, I want to begin in actually in verse, chapter 4, verse 23, because we're going to be going through 5 through 7, but we need to get a, a good backdrop of what's going on to really understand the full context and get a great feel of what God is speaking and saying to us. So let's begin in verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. See, Jesus hasn't been on the scene long. His ministry had just begun, and not, not even all the 12 apostles had been called yet, by the way. I mean, we think of Jesus doing the ministry, he's got the 12 apostles. Right now, he's only got four out of the 12. Two sets of brothers. He's got Peter and his brother Andrew, and he's got James and John, and he had just called them in, the, in a previous section. So these guys are, had seen Jesus, they'd kind of heard about him, they were, but he's the new kid on the block, and they're trying to figure out who this guy is. He, he seems like the Messiah that we've heard about, but yet he, he seems different. We don't quite understand him. And we see that he went throughout all Galilee. Now, Galilee is a region a little bit like Fox Valley. You've got about 300,000 people divided over 200 villages, and Jesus is, is going out throughout Galilee and he is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, Jesus was into his mission. We see that he had, he had been reserved. I mean, if, we, if you know anything about Jesus, the first 30 years of his life was lived in relative obscurity. And he launches into this ministry just a, few, a short time before this. And he had... He had uh, he had launched it after he had heard about the arrest of his, his relative, John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been in prison because he had spoken out against Herod's uh, marrying his sister-in-law. Uh, John was arrested. Jesus retreats to Galilee. And then he calls his disciples and launches into this ministry with this message in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 17. He starts proclaiming this. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, he calls his disciples, and he had it all planned out. And if we're to get a picture or an understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, then it requires us, first of all, understanding and examining his agenda. That's the first part I want you to write down in your notes. His agenda. He had an agenda. It was all planned out. He knew exactly what he came to do. He knew exactly that he had three years to do it in. He had a complete agenda. Now, this agenda involved three different things. It involved, first of all, a mission. 
He was on a mission from God. And what was part of that mission? Luke 19.10. Check this out on the screen. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The lost. He was on a mission to redeem humanity. That's the cool thing about it. And you see that beginning, even in his temptation, in the early part of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and he is tempted by the devil. He's been out there 40 days, and we have three of his temptations on record. There were probably many more. And we've talked about this several times in here, where the temptation, I mean, Jesus is out there, he's fasting, and he is hungry. And the devil shows up. And the devil, what's the devil say to him? Turn these stones into bread. Now, we've talked about this before. Is it wrong for him to turn stones into bread? I mean, does he have the ability to do so? Yeah, he does. He has the complete ability to do so. He is God. Now, do we have the ability to do that? No, we don't have the ability to do that. And Jesus knew that if he did that, that's something we could not do. See, Jesus came and he had to identify with us. See, that's why he was baptized. He didn't have any sin to repent of. He had to identify with us. That's why he comes to John the Baptist and he goes, I came to be baptized. And he goes, no, 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 no. It is I who should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, to, Jesus says to him, let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, I'm taking my place with sinful man. I've come to identify and redeem man. I'm on a mission to redeem man. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to take man's sins and struggles upon myself. And I am casting my lot with them. It's, it's something that the disciples didn't even grasp. Matter of fact, after Jesus prophesies in Matthew 16 about his suffering and upcoming death, he says that he is going to suffer underneath the religious leaders, and then he's going to die, and then he's going to rise again. Peter, loudmouth, foot in the mouth Peter, grabs Jesus, good leadership, and pulls him aside. Doesn't rebuke him in front of everybody, but he pulls him aside and he rebukes him. And he goes, Lord, this will never happen to you. What does Jesus say? Jesus identifies the root of it all. He says, this is satanic. Get behind me, Satan. Now, it's a hard rebuke because he's saying, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. I came to save man. I have to suffer. I have to die. That's how much I love. And if I don't, if I don't suffer, then I can't save. See, that's how much he loves you. That he's not going to be deterred. He is coming to identify with you, and he's not going to be pushed away. He is determined. He has a mission that will not be thwarted. Now, he also has a message. Write that down. He has a message that he is come to proclaim. Notice this in verse, chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what was he doing? He was telling people to turn back to God. Do an about face. Don't continue in your sin. You can't have what God wants you to have without repentance. There's no such thing. See, we have a tendency to think that I can have Jesus and my sin. You know, what's interesting is I was studying for this passage. I came across, came across this most startling imagery in history. The poet Virgil, who was a Greek poet, captured some of the things that um, the Romans did in ancient times to captives. If someone was a captive and they wanted to punish them, it was a slow death. And, and you know what they would do? They would take a dead body. They would strap it to the person face to face. 
And they would have them carry that body around until the person would literally die from taking in all the smell and the fumes from the corpse. Now, Paul refers to that as this body of death that we carry around. You know, what happens is, is when Jesus died, he cut us free from that body of death. See, we can't continue and hold on to our sin and have the Savior. But see, many of us see that the, though we were cut free, we're holding on to the corpse. That's what we're doing by holding on to our sin. We're walking around with his sin. And you can't hold on to your sin and experience the freedom of the Savior. You can't. You have to be, realize that we've been set free. You have to repent of it, turn away from it. Jesus was giving us this message that we have been set free, but we have to repent and enter into this new life that he is giving us. Jesus was on a mission. He had a message, but he also knew that he was the revelation of God's great mystery. Mystery. Write that down. How many of you like mysteries? You like mysteries? You like mysteries? Come on, stick your hand up. Who likes mysteries? Okay. How many of you are conspiracy nuts? Any conspiracy nuts in the house? All right, we'll see you two afterwards, okay? Right, there's conspiracies. For instance, we all like a good mystery, right? We all have theories. Who shot JFK? Who was the, was there a second gunman on the grassy knoll? There was three. He's like, there was three, right? Where is Jimmy Hoffa buried? Who knows? Is Tupac dead? You know, these are all these mysteries that we have. And we'll not know, but you know what? The greatest mystery that has ever been made known to man is Christ. Now, here's what I mean by that. Augustine, a great theologian, captured it this way. He was talking about the Old Testament. He said, in the New Testament, he said, in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. In the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. Let me say that again. In the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. In the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. See, Jesus' coming was to show the depth of God's love for mankind. God, through Christ, was pulling the curtain of his plan back for the world to see. Now consider for a moment how even Jesus taught the crowds. I want us to look at some of these voices, these verses. I want us to look at this passage right here in Matthew 13, 35. Jesus says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Or Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Everything about the Old Testament was pointing to me. This passage in John chapter 5 through 539. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. It's all about him. It was all to point to him. He's God's great mystery. Paul tries to capture this as well. In Colossians 1, 25 through 27, Paul says that he was to make the word of God fully known. The mystery. In Greek, it's the mysterion. Something that had been previously hidden now is made known. Hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Or again, in Romans 16, 25 through 26, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. In the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept hidden, kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith. Or again in 1 Timothy 
great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, it's interesting here. Mystery of godliness. When I think of godliness, this is not the first thing that comes up in my mind. When they say the mystery of godliness is this, that he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This was the mystery that was revealed. This is the greatest single act that mankind has ever known, that Christ, that God himself would visit us. This was something so great and so amazing that Peter says that angels long to look into it and understand it. And yet we've become complacent and bored. Fail to understand this great mystery. And imagine God himself sitting in front of us, talking to us about how to live. And that's exactly what was happening. See, Jesus had an agenda. He had a mission, a message. And he was the revelation of God's mystery. Now we've seen his agenda, but now let's look at his address. His address to the crowds. We're jumping into chapter 5, verse 1 now. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, we see here that there is a, we're just going to go through this rather quickly, that there's a crowd. There's a crowd of people. So we have this crowd that has come to Jesus. In this crowd are different groups. There are those who had just been cured. They'd experienced what God had done for them. Then we have the curious. They'd heard about it. They wanted to know who Jesus was, excuse me. I'm sure that we also have their critics, because anytime you have a work of God like that, critics come out of the woodwork. But then he's got the committed. He's got his disciples that are around. So we have these crowds of people that have come to Jesus. Now we also see that there's, it's not just a crowd of people, but there's a specific place. Interestingly enough, when the text says he went up on the mountain, It doesn't have an indefinite article there, like some translations have, and you might have that in yours. It doesn't say that he went up a mountain. It says that he went up the mountain, a very specific place that he went to. Now, some authors and scholars believe that he is likening himself uh, and setting himself up to show that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, of which the Old Testament law pointed to, and the place of the Old Testament law was Mount Sinai. That he is the new Moses. He is the new teacher. He was the one that everything in the Old Testament talked about. You know, see, God has a way of speaking on mountains. You know that? Go throughout the Old Testament, start doing a little mountain study. Go a little, do a little mountain climbing with God. You've got Abraham with Isaac on Mount Moriah. You've got Moses with the people on Mount Sinai. You've got Moses and Aaron on Mount Hor. You've got Moses again on Mount Nebo. You've got Elijah on Mount Carmel. You've got then also in the New Testament the Mount of Transfiguration. See, God has a tendency to use mountains. And he's, he's using this as a means to show he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises and plans. So he has a specific place, and he also has a definite posture, a definite posture. Notice what he did. He sat. Only rabbis sat, and he had definite authority. Matter of fact, his authority was, was so amazing that the people said, what, a new teaching and with authority. See, the old teachers had a tendency to quote different authors. We have a tendency to do that today. We quote pastors, so-and-so said this, John Piper said that, E.B. Hill said this, Tony Evans said that. 
But Jesus comes along and he doesn't quote anybody. He doesn't need to. He's the author. He wrote it. He knows exactly what he meant. And he's the authority. And he speaks to them as one with authority. So he has a definite posture. And then he also has a special process. And it says that he opened his mouth and began speaking. It's a Jewish idiom of him teaching. He's teaching them. Now, it's interestingly enough that we go back and he had healed all these people. And we, we think, oh, why don't you keep healing people? That's what the people wanted to see. They wanted to see the show, right? We all like a good show, right? We all like a good show. We see uh, Jesus didn't like the show. He didn't like being a sideshow. Matter of fact, we see him time and time again. After he heals, he leaves a certain region because people show up and they want to see the miracles. They don't care anything about how to live. They say, Jesus, don't tell us how to live. Put on a show for us. See that in Mark chapter 1. Jesus has been healing all day, one day so much that they didn't even get anything to eat. He's tired. He goes to sleep. He wakes up early the next morning and goes out and prays into a desolate place. And the disciples are looking for him because undoubtedly people wanted more. More people started showing up at the house early. So they go looking for Jesus and they go, everybody's looking for you. And he's like, no, no, no. That's not what he says. He says, let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. See, he had a definite process, and it was through teaching of his word that he wanted it to be applied to our lives. Now, here's the question that we ask ourselves. How often do we let God's word sink into our hearts? How much does God's word direct your life? It's not about how much you read God's word. It's how much do you let God's word read you? Do you recognize that he has the authority? And it's not authority that he lords it over. It's to delight and direct your life into fullness of joy. He has a definite posture and a special process. Now, he wanted to preach and teach them how to live. And healing and miracles were secondary. His primary goal was to preach the good news, and the good news they were to believe in was himself, that God had sent him. And this, by this belief and what he says, they were to organize their lives by the truths he taught. He taught, look, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What he teaches becomes known as the Beatitudes, and some people call these the beautiful attitudes. The beautiful attitudes. That's number three in your notes. We need to understand how to apply and understand and live out these beautiful attitudes. Now, the word beatitude is derived from the Latin translation of the Greek word makarios, which is the first word of each of the beatitudes and is often translated blessed. Ancient writers used it to mean free from daily cares and worries, prosperous, and as a description of the blessed state of the gods in ancient Greece. They were, there were several images that evoked beatitude or this blessing in ancient literature, whether it is praiseworthy children, living a life of virtue, piety, wisdom, and fame. See, some modern scholars have translated it as happy or fortunate, but it's more than that because happiness connotes a feeling, usually a feeling, and this is more than that. This is a deep, abiding state of joy and knowing one is living a life approved by God, which is seen in behaviors or attitudes. Now, it is to these individuals for whom the kingdom of heaven is for. Look, in fact, at the Greek word, uh, or the word theirs. It says, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs. In Greek, it's an emphatic position denoting that the kingdom of heaven belongs distinctly and only to them. Now, what does that mean? It means this, that the beatitudes and these attitudes that God has for us can only be lived out, and they are only the characteristics of Christians. They're only to be lived out by Christians. You can't live this type of life without Christ. In other words, it's like this. I saw a documentary, and I think I've referenced it here some time ago. Why I was watching this, I have no idea. But it was on shepherds in Montana. I was bored. Okay? No dialogue, just these shepherds in Montana. And I'm watching this, and, and it's just these, these, these guys who are, who are uh, shepherds. And they have this barn, and in the barn they have all these pens for these different sheep. And there was this, this mama uh, sheep, this ewe, who has a baby. And uh, or actually, two mo- two sheep ewes have babies. Well, the one mama, her sheep, her lamb dies, and the other little, the le- the other couple, the the mama dies. So obviously, if you want this little you this lamb to live, what are you going to do? You're going to give it to the other mama, right? Well, see, the problem is, is this mama won't take that lamb because it's not hers. She won't accept it. So what they did was this. They took the dead lamb and they skinned it. They took the skin of that dead lamb and they literally put it on the other lamb like a sweater. They dressed it, put it on it, and then they took that lamb to the sheep and then she would let that lamb drink because she smelled her lamb. See, we can't live a life blessed by God until we have come and surrendered to Christ. And we put Christ on, and then when God sees us, he smells his son. But see, his son had to die in order for us to be accepted by God, to be brought near. That we have to put him on, and that means we have to be repenting of our sins. So we can't live this kingdom life that Jesus is teaching us until we surrender. See, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. It's not literally poor. Some scholars have actually said it's you're, you're in poverty. No, it's poor in spirit. There's a qualifier there. These are those who have surrendered themselves, who realize their bankruptcy, and they're not accepted by God on their own merit, that they have to come totally bankrupt. We can't come to God with our own self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. We cannot have the Son while holding on to our sin. We have to be repentant. So we have to remember that these are characteristics that only Christians can live out. Secondly, we have to know that these Beatitudes that we're going to be studying, all of them, are a package deal that you can't pick and choose. They're a package deal. We have a tendency to pick and choose what commandments we want to obey and what commandments we don't. But let's take that illustration into life, shall we? Let's go into Payless Shoe Store. Walk in and say, hello, I would like one shoe. What are they going to say to you? I can't sell you one shoe. I can only sell you two shoes. This pair, why? They're a package deal. It's the same with the Beatitudes. It's a package deal. We can't pick and choose which ones we want. They're all for us. So we can't pick and choose them. We also need to understand that they are behaviors that flow from beliefs. Behaviors that flow from beliefs. Now, 
I'm amazed at people, and I don't know why people insist on doing this, but people like to lie to me all the time. Some of you are in here right now. And people like to lie to me all the time, and they like to tell me how great they are. How great they are, what a great parent they are, what a great church attender they are, uh, you know, how moral they are. And sometimes when people do that, I get this weird feeling. And I'm like, mm, why are you pretending? You just know it's, it's fake. It's a show. I mean, we've all done that before in our life, have we not? We try to make ourselves better than we really are. To make ourselves, you know, try to save face in something and, and puff ourselves up and how good we are and how great we have it together how cool we are, how smart we are. And we do that in the church when we get saved. We want to be spiritual. We want to be seen as this. And we fail to remember, though, that we have to come bankrupt before God. We have to be honest before God. See, we can't, be, we can't do what God wants us to do and we are, until we are radically honest about how fallen and bankrupt we really are at our core. We can't. We have to come to God completely honest about who we are in our lives. We can't move forward in our relationship with God until we are real with Him. I like it when people are honest with me. I, I really do. I, I, be honest with me. That doesn't mean you go out of your way to sin and do something stupid, but be honest. Be honest with me. When I sit down across from people, I, I, don't, I don't need you to tell me who you are. Show me. What I mean by that is this. Show me by your life. Show me by your calendar. Show me by your checking account. Show me by your entertainment choices. Show me by your browser history. Show me that. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying do it for me. I'm not saying that at all. That's legalism and self-righteousness. What I'm saying is this. If you're truly a follower of Christ, it will be seen in everything that you do. You don't need to tell me. I'll see it. Because it's out of the overflow of our heart that it comes out. Because if you're trying to hide it, it's going to come out. I guarantee it. It's going to come out eventually. You try to hide your sin and try to hide who you are, that's when it's going to come out. That's why I tell couples when they're dating, people come to me and they say, when should we get married? How long have you known each other? A week. All right. Well, you think you need to wait longer. <laughs> but usually I say a year and a half. A year and a half. Here's why. Because in a year and a half, you're going to learn a lot about the person. You're going to learn about how they act with your friends how they act with their friends. You're going to see how they act with your family and how you act with her family. And you're going to see them go through struggles and how they deal with money and how they deal with pressure. You're going to learn all this stuff. Then you can make an informed decision about what to do. All the married people are like, yep. <laughs> right? It's true. We get to know all of these things. And that's where I, you know, I tell people, we have to make sure that we are being honest and take time to get to know one another and how we are to live. These beatitudes flow from beliefs, and they are also attributes that glorify God and grant blessing to us. Attributes that glorify God and bring blessing to us. I mentioned that we're already blessed or approved through Christ, Christ, but when we put on these beautiful attitudes into practice, we will find that God is receiving glory, and we are experiencing great joy. We'll find that we're not burdened down by worry or anxiety, but that we have an internal joy that wells up inside us. Now, some of us in this room are stubborn. How many of us are stubborn? How many of you, your spouse is stubborn? <laughs> A lot more hands went up on that one. All right. Yeah, we're stubborn. And we have this tendency to go our own way until God hedges us in to the point where we can't do anything else but be obedient. 
You ever had that happen to you? You got a lot of prodigals in the room. I've heard your stories. I've heard some of you guys, and we've all done this. We've all continued under our sin when we know we shouldn't have, and it's God kept bringing us in to the point where we're just banging our head against the wall, and we think we're going to get a different result. See, we're, we have a tendency to be prodigals, but God is saying, no, quit being stupid and adopt this new approach to living. That's the next point. It's number four in your notes, this new approach to living. God has a way that he wants you to approach life, and he is laying that out. See, we have a tendency to think our faith is something separate from our daily lives. That's not what God has. It's to be all over our life and permeate every aspect of it. It's not just something I do on Sunday morning or a place where my name is on the roll. It is my life that is offered up to God that I lay before him. This is this new approach. Now, this new approach requires a few different things. It requires two things off the bat. First of all, it needs, means that we need to be aware of our sinful condition, that we are sinners by nature. We're naughty by nature. That's what we are. Next, we have to understand that we make selfish choices. We all do. Everyone in this room, without exception, we have a tendency to make selfish choices. Now, Jesus' very first beatitude is the launching point for the rest of them. And when he's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, it is talking about self-awareness, not this spiritual abasement. Here's what I mean by that. Don't walk around and, and, and say, oh, I'm such a bad person all the time. That's not what it's talking about, or putting yourself down. It's being self-aware that we are sinners, and we understand our, our nature. That's what Jesus lays out in the passage we studied in our small groups in Luke chapter 18. I want you to see this. This is a great illustration and example of what it means to be poor in spirit. Two men, Jesus gives this parable, went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, which was of the who's who of religious teachers. These were the cream of the crop, the best of the best, the, the Harvard of religion. These were the experts, the lawgivers, the pious of the pious. Okay? But they had a tendency to be hypocritical. They were great on the outside, but nothing on the inside, right? Not all were bad, but most of them were. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, a tax collector, we've talked about this several times, but tax collectors were often Jews that worked for the occupying Roman government. So Romans hated them because they were Jews, and Jews hated them because they're working for the Romans. And, and not only that, they're tax collectors, and everybody hates tax collectors. Right? How many of you people pray for the IRS? I don't think too many in here pray for the IRS. Right? And what do people fear most? What two things? Death and taxes. Death and taxes. It's amazing. How many of you get stressed out when you fill out your taxes? How many of you wait till April 14th? All right, there you go. We don't like doing it. We don't like our taxes. And we definitely don't like people that take our money. And that's what these guys did. So they're despised, social outcasts. And they had a tendency, though, to take advantage and shake down their countrymen. So this is what happens. They have a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. The guy has enough gall to cite the guy <laughs> right there. And that's, that's some chutzpah. And he says, and he, he says, I'm not like him. He says, I fast twice a week. I'm all good. I give tithes of all that I get. I have the MacArthur Study Bible. 
Okay, not citing John MacArthur, but this is what, we have these today, do we not? Okay, don't knock it. I got a MacArthur Study Bible, so don't feel like I'm knocking you out. But whatever, you know, fill in the blank. I went to Booty Bible Institute or whatever you want to throw in there. <laughs> I went to Moody too, so we're all right. Okay. He says, I give tithes of all that I get. Here's my giving statement. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, it's not self-abasement, self-awareness. It's awareness that we are spiritually bankrupt and that we have nothing to offer God in and of ourselves. Think about that. Let me ask you this question. How many of you think, and I'm not asking you to raise your hand, I'm asking you to think in the reality of your heart that God is privileged to have you. You ever felt that way? I have. Like, I thought I was so great. And you know how, what happens? God has a tendency of humbling us when we do that. Bringing us to the end of ourselves, showing us that we are not as good as we think we are. So it's better to do that voluntarily to humble ourselves rather than to be humbled. We have to recognize that we are poor in spirit before God. You know, when I pastored in the city of Chicago, I used to think that pastoring in the suburbs would be a breeze. I used to be in the city, and I used to think, oh, the people in the suburbs got it so easy. The city is so hard. Ministry is so difficult. And uh, it wasn't until I got into the suburbs that I realized it's a lot harder. You know why? Because, see, people in the city knew many often, most often that they were sinners and that they didn't have all the answers to life and that they didn't have everything they needed and life was difficult and there was pain and there was problems. In the suburbs, there's this aura of comfortability and self-sufficiency that is hard to break through. See, we have to break through that. We have to show that we are and be reminded that we are spiritually bankrupt. We can't be self-righteous. Remember the story and the parable of the prodigal son? We often talk about the prodigal son, and I think many of us in this room identify with the prodigal son, but we forget the ending of that parable. See, after the prodigal son comes back, he's received by his father. His father throws a party, and then his brother shows up. The brother was the one who never left. And he rebukes his father. He doesn't even say, my brother. He says, that son of yours, how dare you throw a party for him? What are you thinking? He has totally wasted everything. He's totally lived a life, complete rebellion of everything that you believed in, what we believed in, and you throw him a party? You never threw me a party. I mean, he's ticked. He's angry. And his, the father says to him, everything I have is yours. It's always been there. Come, your brother was dead. Now he's alive. Come back and celebrate. And we are left with a cliffhanger. And Jesus meant it to be that way, that we are meant to ask ourselves the question, did the brother go in? See, many of us start off as prodigals, but then somewhere along the line in our walk, we become the self-righteous. And God is asking us to think back and, and say, are we celebrating and are we are seeking, are we participating and embracing God's mission to seek and save the lost? 
See, we have to understand our absolute and indisputable need of a Savior. Our need of a Savior. See, if this approach to living is to work, we have to understand not only that we have a sinful condition and we make selfish choices, but we have an absolute need of a Savior. That's that letter C in your notes. We need a Savior. We can't save ourselves. We have to give up our own self-sufficiency, our own self-righteousness. We must declare our spiritual bankruptcy and receive what God has for us. We need a Savior, and we are in desperate need of the Spirit of God to help us through this. Desperate need of the Spirit of God. See, it is only by the Spirit of God that we can live the life God desires and do the things that Jesus is referring to. We need God's Spirit to help guide us, to help us live this life God has for us. See, if you've placed your faith in Christ, God has given his spirit to you, but you must be filled and directed by his spirit if you are to soar with him. It's like getting into a hot air balloon. When you're in the hot air balloon and you're in the basket and it's filled with air, you're not flying yet. See, it might just have it in it. There's two things that need to happen for that balloon to take off. The first is what? You're tied, right? You have to untie it, right? See, that's, that's, that's denying our, our flesh. That's taking up our cross. That's untying that. But then what else do you have to do? What has to happen to that air? It has to be heated up, right? How are we heated up and we soar with God? By taking in things from the Spirit of God, which means reading the Word of God, praying, doing the spiritual disciplines by which we are made hot to help soar with God. So we take up our cross daily. That's, that's dying to ourselves. That's casting off that rope. And then we are taking in the things of the Spirit of God so that we might soar with God and experience the life that He delights us living. See, what He has given us are true words to live by. They will direct our lives, but they're going to convict us of our sin. And I am so excited to be into this series and see what God has for us. Because these are true words to live by and show that we can be true representatives and beneficiaries of this upside-down kingdom as we embrace these kingdom beautiful attitudes, we will discover the presence of God and great joy by doing what he wants us to do. Let's pray. Father, as we come into your presence, Lord, we ask that you truly might speak to us. Lord, help us this week to go home and to open up this wonderful chapter within the scripture and pour out our hearts to you. Lord, we ask you, perform a spiritual surgery on us. Help us to let the words of this beatitude and of this Sermon on the Mount sink into the depths of our soul that we might go forth changed, we might go forth transformed, that we might leave our sin behind, and that we might embrace you. Lord, we see the depth of your love. We see what it means to live. And Lord, we know how difficult it is and how much our flesh gets in the way. We know how much we love our sin. We know how comfortable we are. And we know how much our problems and pains creep in and keep us from seeing you. But Lord, help us to grasp and hold on to you. Help us to detach from the pains and problems of this world by taking up our cross daily. And help us to truly soar by reading your word and taking in the things of the Spirit, fellowshipping with other believers and studying your word and learning what it means to be one of your children. Lord, we know that you have planned and purposed us. And Lord, it's a plan and purpose that is meant for our delight. 
not to be drudgery. So Lord, help us to delight in you. Help us to know how to put to death the misdeeds of the sinful nature and to experience the life that you have in and for us for the glory and power of your holy and precious name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.